Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guests are Randall Myler and Dan Wheatman, and they're the creators of a show, Mark Twain's River of Song, which plays through October 27th. The first preview is October 2nd, and it opens on October 4th at TheaterWorks Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts. And for more information, you can go to theaterworks.org. Randall Myler and Dan Wheatman have created several shows together. You guys did Hank Williams' Lost Highway and several other shows. Fire on the Mountain was done here at TheaterWorks and Tony Award-winning show. It ain't nothing but the blues. This particular show, let's go back, getting together, you guys. What brought you together, Randall? It goes way back, maybe 35 years, Dan, at least. I was directing a national tour of a musical called Quilters, and it was out of the Denver Center Theater, a large theater in Denver. And I needed, at the time, a multi-instrumentalist, particularly a fiddle player. And someone told me that John Denver's band wasn't touring that fall and that I should call a gentleman named Dan Wheatman up in Aspen. Out of the blue, Danny got a call, and Danny probably can take it from there. I got a call saying, would you like to do this tour of a theater production? And I said, well, you know, I asked a few questions. They said, well, it's about uh, women in the 1800s. I said, I know a lot about that music, and I play a bunch of different instruments, and every instrument I mentioned, they said, bring it along. So I ended up coming to Denver with a trunk full of eight instruments, and we were on the road for four and a half months. So what exactly did you do in that show? You were just a musician. I was just a musician. What about your transition to actually working on the shows itself? How did that come about? Well, Randy and I just struck up a great friendship. He hired me to come back and be a musician in the second thing that he had directed. And in the process of that, he had written um, The Hank Williams Show. And in doing that show, we talked about, well, gosh, you know, there's all these people that learned how to play music from black musicians. Why don't we do a show about the black musicians? And that's how It Ain't Nothing But The Blues came about. Now, at that point, let's go back to Randall. Your background is in theater? Yeah, totally in theater. I was an actor, and then I moved to directing, and I've directed all over the country, yeah. I actually live in New York City now uh, with a wife uh, who's an actress and uh, a young son. But I grew up in Northern California. I grew up in Sonoma County. So when you were growing up, there's a lot of music around here. A lot of music around here. It, and it was a funny combination. My dad was a uh, actually a coal miner from West Virginia who joined World War II as a 16-year-old. I think he lied about his age and ended up in Northern California. And, uh, you know, his idea of music, uh, what he loved most was little Jimmy Dickens and, and Grand Ole Opry and things like that. Whereas growing up in Northern California in, this, in the late 60s, We were all into Janis Joplin and and Big Brother and all the other groups here in the Bay Area. It's a funny combination. How did the professional theater 
work begin? I was inspired in high school by some really good teachers and went on to college. And then you jump into a summer stock and then suddenly off your career goes, you know. And at some point you switched to creation and direction. That's right. I, I, I just became more interested in writing shows and, and directing shows. And I was given a chance at a theater in uh, Solvang, Santa Maria called Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, a man named Donovan Marley who ran it. Uh, and then when he moved to a larger theater, Denver Center Theater, uh, some of us went along with him and off the career went. And Dan Wheatman, so you were a musician. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern California and actually started off in theater and had a chance to go to college on a scholarship as an actor. And my last year of high school, I got into a rock and roll band. I missed a play rehearsal was thrown out of the play, and I just went off into music, and I stayed there until I got a call from this guy. <laughs> well, you were with John Denver and his band. How did you get into John Denver's band? Uh, in the late 60s, I moved to Aspen, Colorado, and I ended up joining a band that John came down and li listened to all the time. And the first thing with him was he asked us to record an album for his new label, we went out as the opening act on a U.S. tour. And two years later, he decided he wanted to add singers to his group. And it was just one of those things. I had been in uh, Austin, Texas with Jimmy Dale Gilmore on a trip playing music. When I got back to Aspen, there were two phone calls. The first one was from the guitar player in the band that I was in, Liberty, saying that his wife wanted to go back to California and the band was going to dissolve. The second one was from John Denver's road manager asking me if I wanted to sing backup in John Denver's band. <laughs> so within 15 minutes, I was out of a band and into a band. Uh, on the way over here, I heard Rocky Mountain High. Are you on that rec recording? I, no, that's that's before I, jo I joined <laughs> John in 77 and played till 86 in his band. You had left the band in John Denver long before he died. Oh, yeah. In 80. Six, he decided to go out as a solo career. A lot of things had happened in his life. He got dropped from RCA, and he, he had a breakup with his manager. And he put a band together later on, a smaller band, and toured for a long time. But, yeah, I, my last tour was um, summer of 86. And you and Randall connected up when? In 85. So the very first show was for you was the tour of quilters oh, yeah. and then i did pearly and then we did the hank williams show and out of that we wrote with a couple other people we wrote it ain't nothing but the blues so pearly was a broadway show i mean you got a you suddenly were doing broadway shows was it the tour or? no this was in the denver center theater oh, which okay. is a very large theater company and i did it there with randy and then out of Ain't Nothing But the Blues, we were backstage one day going, you know, there's all this great, uh, there was a song in Ain't Nothing But the Blues, my home's across the Blue Ridge Mountains. Maybe we ought to do something about Appalachia. His father was from around there. And so we wrote a play about that and it just kept going on from there. You worked with the Muppets at one point? Well, I was in John Denver's band. John did two specials with the Muppets. So I was on the TV special with that. And then I got a call to do um, 
we were going to LA in July to record a Christmas album. And I knew we were going to record a Christmas album. I wrote a couple songs and I played them for John when we got there. And he really liked one of them. And so he sang it in the recording studio. And then he went to England and did the recording, finished the album with the Muppets. And Jim Henson loved the song. And so Kermit sang it. Let's move on now to the Mark Twain show. You've done all these shows and... At some point, you decided Mark Twain, or you decided traditional Mississippi songs, or how did that come about, Randall? There are uh, other shows that we did together. Right. We have a show called Mama Hated Diesels that's the music of uh, truck drivers, uh, and in, I interviewed truck drivers in truck stops. So we're, we, we're constantly looking and, and enjoying different styles of music, you know, and I was listening to Danny and some of the other guys play different, different not only the Mississippi River as we know it, southern Mississippi, but also the music of northern Mississippi. You don't hear as much about the lumberjack songs in, in Minneapolis and Wisconsin and the farmer songs heading down river. And we thought that might be a, a fun thing to, to, to do all the different music of this river that cuts the United States in half, you know, all the different sounds and, and, and all that. And then we, then, then we thought, well... Who would be our uh, our tour guide. tour guide on that? And clearly, it's Mark Twain. I mean, let's be honest. You know, he he not only wrote about it so much, he lived it. You know, and, and understood the river. What do you do at that point? Well, you you know, there's so much Mark Twain material, and I personally adapted uh, Huckleberry Finn for the Actors Theater of Louisville and Connecticut Yankee for another theater. So I've done a lot of that as well. So Twain was someone that I really really loved, and you have. A million quotes. It's it's there's there's so much material, so that we we're not writing the show so much as culling material, and we also wanted to incorporate some actual oral history of the of the region as well. So it's a combination of that and songs. So you went back to things like the two volume Life on the Mississippi, Absolutely. as well as Huck sure. Finn, and you know uh, a lot of the things I found were from lectures he gave and and essays he wrote, little snippets. You know. So there's a little bit of Mark Twain tonight in there. There's always, you know, that was his style in his lectures, to come out and make you laugh, talk. He was very good at, at one-man shows long before Hal Holbrook, you know. Well, there's also um, political stuff, which has come to the fore in recent years as well. Oh, absolutely. And he was not exactly a fan of religion. Among other things. <laughs> Did you incorporate some of that? There's a little here and there, yeah. You know, to be true to Twain, you have to have a little bite to it every now and then. And Dan, at that point, are you going through the music and figuring out what songs you want to use? After we sketched out the sort of, we're going to go from many, you know, from the north to the Gulf of Mexico, well, the river is full of music. I mean, all of the different places. And then I just started to write songs that I thought, were not only uh, in the traditional form, but would push the story along. So these are some of these are your original songs. Yeah. Half of the half of the music I wrote. So you wrote the music and lyrics for about half of the songs. Yeah, you're doing that at that end and working together on the script at that point. Yes, uh, we just communicate back and forth. I'll find something and go. Look, I just found this slave narrative. What do you think? Will it fit here? And he goes, well, we can use this part of it, but I found this, and we'll put that 
and connect it, make it all connect together. Uh, at this point, is this mostly email? Uh, yeah, email and telephone. I mean, I live in Seattle and he lives in New York, so <laughs> I, I can't just drop in for the afternoon and <laughs> have a cup of coffee and talk about the script. At what point does Milwaukee Repertory come in? We had done several shows. What did you do, like three shows there, Randy? And they contacted us and said, you know, we have a slot here. Do you guys have something to put in that slot? Well, we had talked about the Twain thing. Randy said, sure, we've got this Twain. <laughs> put it on in there. So then we seriously started writing everything, getting a, a, a structure for it. In Milwaukee, we only had three people in the cast, which was great. And also limiting to a lot. I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff we couldn't do. And is that the only other place that's been performed then? Yes, this is actually, would you say, more or less a new script from, I mean, there's the, oh. there's the framework that we used and a lot of the stuff that we used, but we've added a, a female and we've added more musicians and, and we've added a twain, an actual twain. So, oh, there was no twain in the original. Well, there was a fellow that spoke for Twain, but he was also the musician. I mean, there were only three people, so <laughs> the ball was being tossed around quite and, a bit. You know, that's how shows happen. The original Hank Williams show was for Mark Harlick, who sang it and also helped me put it together, and an actor named Powers Booth, who went on to great fame as a film actor, and one or two others. We did it as a tiny little cast. And then it kept growing and growing. And as we were determining what the piece is, that's how it happens. And we were lucky enough here that uh, Robert Kelly, who we admire so much, took a chance and said, well, let's expand it. What was your vision? And our vision was bigger. <laughs> <laughs> this is still a small show, but bigger than we had, you know. When you talk about it being bigger, well, what's the cast of the show now? It's only six, right? Yeah. Six, yeah. And Dan, are you in the cast? Yes. I took some time off from my band so that I could do this. Well, you have several albums. Yeah, I have a couple of solo albums, and I've been in the same band for the last 33 years, Marley's Ghost. We ah. play at the Freight and Salvage and around here every once in a while, but um, uh, just an eclectic band. But I told the guys, look, this is a really dear project for me, and I'd like to take this two months off. And they all said... Okay. You've got these pieces, but you have to find, you have to make it all connect. We're heading down the river. It passes farms and it passes mill workers and lumberjacks and, you know, and it's heading south. We made the river a character. That's how we tied everything together. We just made the river one of the characters. And there are themes, musical themes that, that continue throughout the play. And then you meet these people along the river, and there's some, I'm, I gotta say, there's some really powerful acting. It's not all light and fluffy. You also did, Randall, Nat King Cole and me, is that correct? Yeah, a friend of ours uh, that was in our blues show named Gregory Porter. Now Gregory's an international star. <laughs> but when we first met Gregory, he auditioned for a show of ours, and he was in the cast, and was so wonderful. And on the off time, this is how shows happen. In the off time, uh, when we're fooling around with the blues show in, in tech, uh, which he was in, he starts singing some Nat King Cole. And we're like, wow, this is great. And, he's, and then he said to me, well, you know, I, I didn't know my father 
but my mom had a, a stack of Nat King Cole records when I was really little, and I'd put them on, and he was my surrogate father telling me to straighten up and fly right. Do you know what I mean? And so Gregory and I sort of put together a show. That, Gregory did the writing about his life. It was called Nat King Cole and Me. And what's interesting, we did that at the Denver Center. What's interesting, cut to years later, just recently Gregory calls and goes, hey, is it okay if I use the, the title Nat King Cole and Me in my new album, you know, my new CD? Well, he's Gregory's international star now. I mean, he's big, won all the Grammys, all that. For and you said no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was his show and his no, life. How are you going to say no? You know, he's a great guy and he deserves all the fame and recognition he's gotten. We loved Gregory. Yeah. Let's go back to It Ain't Nothing But the Blues for a moment because, you know, every show has a trajectory and that one had a trajectory which ended with you getting a nomination for uh, for the show and for uh, Dan and I and yeah. some of the cast yeah. members. So that was good, yeah. Obviously, you never know if a show's going to continue, any of that. So where did It Ain't Nothing but the blues start, and how did it wind up getting on Broadway? Dan, Dan can tell you this musically, how it started, because it was interesting. Okay, this is a recurring theme, right? We're doing uh, the Hank Williams show, and this fabulous actor and singer named Ron Taylor, who was the original voice for the plant in uh, Little Shop of Horrors on Broadway, was T-Tot. T-Tot was the black street musician that Hank Williams learned to play from. So... You know, and he's going, you know, we ought to do a show about these black musicians. So Randy went to um, the head of the Denver Center Theater and pitched the idea. And he said, okay, we have a high school tour and you can have five people and we'll just see if there's anything there. So Randy and Ron and I put together the three other people that were going to be in the cast and worked on the show and got it together and, and did this high school tour in in Denver area, well, all of Colorado and a little bit of Wyoming. And along the way, the local newspaper got wind of it. And also the anchor woman on the Channel 7 in Denver, and they did major publicity about it. And <laughs> Donovan said, you know, my switchboard lit up. When can we see this show? So in a move that I've never seen before, he took a play that was scheduled for the big theater out. And he said to us, you can have X number more people in the cast and make it two acts and we'll put it in the big theater. And it just took off from there. And how did it get to Broadway then? Well, it got to Broadway. We were doing this little four theater tour. And one of them was Crossroads Theater in um, Brunswick, New Jersey. They had a deal with the, um, what was the name of that little theater? New Victory Theater. On yeah, the New Victory. Oh, I remember that. It's, and it's the New, new Victory had a, like a season. They right. were on Broadway, but it was a season. So they had a deal that one of their shows of the season would go to the New Victory and Crossroads picked us. So we went in and opening night, Bernie Gersten, who ran the the Lincoln Center came running backstage saying, I just had to close a show and I need a show and I love this show and can you move in immediately? He had a show running at uh, Lincoln Center that they moved out in the summer and, and he had a slot immediately. In the big theater? In the big theater, yeah. Mm. And then from there we went down to the Ambassador Theater on 50th Broadway 
and that's how we landed. And you know, what was interesting, it's all about luck too and, and placement and all that. We were a very small show with projections I put together, but we had a really good cast. So we didn't do all the bells and whistles, you know, that some Broadway shows do. But we just came out there and the cast just told the truth. They sang the hell out of the show and told the truth. And sometimes that works, you know, and we got really good reviews. And somewhere along the line, you need investors in the show, right? Going up to Lincoln Center, they took care of that. And then the move, once it got good reviews, it, there was a handful of, of smaller investors that added together and made an investor in that case. You know. How long did the show run? It ran a couple of years, uh, maybe 280, 290 performances. It, it did, did well. And then, he, frankly, even after that, we did a little smaller version at B.B. King's Club you know what I mean, with some of the people, to keep them working, and it was fun. But it had a nice run, and then it's been done a lot around the country. Do you wash your hands of these shows at a certain point and just let them move on, or do you, do you still put your mark on a show like that? Uh, a combination of both. Still occasionally, I'll gather the troops together and we do some shows, and then sometimes, like, you know, sending your kid to college, off it goes. You know what I mean? And that's the way it is. So you'll get a call saying, we'd like to put it on, and you go, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, we're in Samuel French and other of those uh, right. bookings, so, you know, that happens. But sometimes the theater will call me directly and go, you know, would you ever like to direct that again? You get a lot of high school productions of your shows? Not as many. I think it's only because it's a little more difficult to cast these kind of shows we do. They're not really high school kid shows. A lot of colleges have done Ain't Nothing But the Blues. Dan Wheatman, have you ever thought about doing a show completely on your own without any other music. <laughs> so Randy has bugged me for years going, Dan, we need to do a show about your time on the road with John Denver. And I'm going, no, man, I'm not going to do a show about me. One day I get a phone call. Hey, Dan, I just talked to Milwaukee Rep. We're going to do your, your John Denver show next season. So I had to sit down and write my life story and then give it to Randy and the two of us straighten it out so that it becomes a play. The interesting thing about that is we did do a show and it went really, really well on Dan's life with John and before, slightly before John and slightly after, but Dan did not play himself. Dan, Dan came as music director and we had a friend of ours, a, a wonderful performer named David Lutkin, who played Dan. But I was interested in it. Sometimes I look at a show differently. I thought, this is a show about a musician on the road, and what effect does that have on your family, on yourself? And that intrigued me as a universal subject. You know, I wrote a show on, on Janis Joplin that was done a lot called Love Janis. And in fact, we did it in, in San Francisco. It went very well. But, you know, originally, Laura Joplin, Janice's sister, called me and said, hey, I saw your, your Hank Williams show. This is how it happens. I saw your Hank Williams show, and we think you should write something on, on my sister. And I said, well, you know, oddly enough, I grew up in Northern California. Yes, and my sorry, yeah. aunt had a, well, my aunt had a butcher shop in Sausalito, Caledonia Meats. And Janice would occasionally come in there. And I remember seeing her in there a few times and, of course, going to her concerts. But I also at the same time thought and said to Laura, the sister, uh, gee, maybe a woman should write the show. And I had a million reasons why maybe not at me. And then she said to me, well, before you say no, we just moved our mom to a rest home in Port Arthur. 
and we found all the letters that Janice had written my parents. And I said, now I'm interested. Because, you know, we weren't all rock stars in the 60s, but we were all trying to explain ourselves to our parents. These are very, very powerful letters. And that was a hook that is a show. You know, since then, Dan and I both get calls from famous people. I'm so-and-so's manager, and we think you could write a show. We saw your Hank Williams show. We think you could write a show. But before I say yes, I have to see, is there a show there? Do you know? And that's sort of uh, another way that shows happen. Well, when you start writing, you definitely look at, you know, does, is this a 90-minute just tell the story? Or I'll tell you what happens a lot of time is a theater will say, we have to have an intermission because we have to sell stuff. And then you have to look at, okay, where do you break it up? And what's the story here? Well, the story here is when we did it in Milwaukee, it had to be two acts. That was one of the theaters that said, it's got to be two acts. So it, had, it came here with that already sort of built into it. Now, when you're constructing a story, the old thing is boy meets girl. You know, there's no rules in theater anymore. Throw out those old rules about plays. I mean, I love well-constructed plays. Nobody's better than Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller. But there's no rules, particularly in musicals. Those old rules do not exist. And with Danny and I, what we write isn't a musical, and it isn't a play. It's this thing. It's this musical Ken Burns thing. I don't know what you'd call it. And, 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 don't, and don't try to define it. I don't think it's, it's, it's necessary anymore. What's required for me as a director, great performers, because to be honest, casting is 80%. Directors can say whatever they want, but casting is 80%. And traffic cop is 10% and psychiatry is 10%. Any director that, that tries to put their stamp on it, other than that, uh, they might be kidding themselves. So you cast the best people. And one thing I, I can do, because I've done so many shows with, uh, like this, is I know who those people are now. I know who the three best musicians I want to be on that stage. I did a, a, a show with Valicia Lakai this summer. And she was up for the Tony Award playing Diana Ross in the original Motown. And I saw her and I thought, we need her in this show. You know, I, I, I'm able to find people like that. And Robert Kelly here at the Theater Works is someone we totally respect and totally will go to bat with, you know. Theater Works has a reputation for doing musicals, particularly ones that have not gone to Broadway. Broadway is, you know, I've done Broadway, off-Broadway, all of that. Broadway's over, overrated. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I love Broadway. Uh, but it's turning into a spectacle place where, where it's turning into... Corporate musicals. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that. People love them. But I have to say ours may exist more in regionals and off-Broadway, one-on-one, and not worry so much about, you know, the Hawaiian number with 50 people. Well, I know when talking to theater directors and artistic directors over the past 10 or 15 years, it used to be New York was the be-all and end-all once it got to New York. But then there are playwrights now who say, I don't want to take my play to New York. I don't think there's a rule either way. My point really being is when Van Gogh painted, he didn't paint to go, I'm going to get this in the Metropolitan Museum. He just painted and I'm not saying we're Van Gogh, but we just sort of put out what we, an honest piece that we believe in and let the chips fall where they may. Do you know what I mean? But I, I know that we have good musicians and good songs 
and the words of Mark Twain and a fantastic actor named Dan Hyatt who's playing Mark Twain, uh, it's a good start. How many plays are you working on right now? Personally, maybe four or five in, in different stages. And Dan, how about you? How many plays am I working on? I've got a couple ideas I've been sort of drawing information about. When we get to a certain space where we think, well, this is a good idea, then either he comes to me or I go to him with the idea. And then we just kind of kick it around, see, well, okay, let's let's either pursue this or uh, this is nice. Let, what if we go in this direction? Well, what if somebody came to you tomorrow and said, you know, you're doing Mark Twain. We don't want to do that for a couple of years. Do you have anything else? Do you have something that you could say, hey, yeah, we got that? If you asked me, I'd say yes. Really? <laughs> but would that piece exist? <laughs> I would say yes, and I would have something for you. The play they did here, Fire on the Mountain, which was very successful here, the way that started was Randy knew the uh, artistic director in San Diego, and the guy called him up and said, hey, uh, do you have a, something for this slot? In, and Randy called me up and said, you know how we've been talking about doing something about coal mining? Let's write it because we have a slot next season. And that's how it goes. Sometimes you write it around a person. Sometimes, you know, just a thought. It's, it's interesting what, what makes it happen, you know. The, let me go back to something that you said is most of these shows you do are kind of undefinable. They're not this, they're not that, they're whatever. Would you ever decide that you wanted to take a play pre-existing or film and put songs in it and just do more of an old-fashioned musical? Uh, anything's possible. <laughs> anything's possible. I just, I, like I said, I, d I just don't think there's any rules anymore. We, I, I remember when I, 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 I was into Carl Sandburg, this, uh, but I remember he got a lot of flack because he was one of the first to not rhyme poetry. Do you know what I mean? And people said, this isn't poetry, whatever. And he'd get a lot of letters. And his reply was this mimeograph thing. I have one that he mimeographed a thing. And they were always complaining that you're, you don't rhyme. Your things don't rhyme. And he sent back a, a, a mimeograph thing to anybody that complained that said, thanks for your letter. I'll try to do better. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> because, you know, they wanted this. We did that. And I understand where they're coming from. You know? Do you break the fourth wall in this show? Yes. We often break the fourth wall. <laughs> the audience becomes an active participant in the shows. To that degree, does any given performance change a lot because of that? Let's be honest. The acting is really sculpting in ice. And as soon as you do it, it melts. And if you try to create it the next night, you never will. So there's an energy that you get from a full house or a, or a half house on a Wednesday or a kitty matinee. There's all different energies like that. I've also been told, particularly when it comes to comedy, that it's impossible to really know until you have that first audience. Oh, yeah, that's true. But you you got to remember with Mark Twain, he did a lot of direct address. We even do a little snippet of Huck and Jim in the show. And the brilliance of the book Huckleberry Finn is that's direct address out of the mouth of the kid to the audience, the reader. And so direct address is required in a show like this, because that was Twain's thing at his lectures. That was uh, Huck Finn's thing to tell the audience. 
So it makes it easier in a way when you know you've got something that some of it is already there in in the material before you even start. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. We're making a patchwork quilt. You know, we have the material. It's For us, it's like, uh, you know, a jigsaw puzzle, putting it here, putting it there, maybe not. Try this joke. It didn't work that night. You know, yeah. Do you ever have a board up where you kind of have post-its? No, just in our head. We have a lot of post-its in our head. Do you ever get that point where you go, we had this great idea. Do you remember what it was? You know who gives you the the best ideas as a director over the years is the actors you have. They're so smart and they come up with ideas and, and ways of doing things and you get the credit for them as a director or a writer, but they, they, they do the, the work in the trenches, you know? So that means for you probably, for you, Randall Myler, the best fun is being a director on a show that doesn't necessarily have a history because now you could create that history. That is fun, and God knows it's also fun to dive into an Arthur Miller play, or I do a lot of, of, of that as well, the well-constructed pieces as well. Final question. Randall Myler, what do you have coming up after this? Mine are unusual. I have a UK tour to put together for Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes because I work with Ronnie about her life story with Phil Spector and beyond. There's a 50s rock and roll music on the life of Alan Freed. I didn't write it, but I directed it. And it has uh, some major Broadway producers. I think it may tour. They, they're, they're deciding because it's still in, in, in process as well. Ever thought of directing the film? No. My, my wife is a, a film and, and television actress that works a lot. But I've never really been that interested. Dan Wheatman, what have you got coming up after River Song? I have a solo album coming out any minute now. I have a tour with my band and uh, working on a new album with the band Marley's Ghost. And I have a family that I need to go and spend some time with. Planning to come out to uh, Freight and Salvage? Uh, there is a plan, but I don't have that in my head. What It's, I think, in the spring uh, 2020. You've been listening to an interview with Randall Myler and Dan Wheatman and their show Mark Twain's River of Song opens October 2nd, officially October 4th, plays through October 27th at TheaterWorks Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts. For more information, you can go to theaterworks.org.